Prince of You lecture, Fan, Fandangos, and Fuertes, an appreciation of Don Quixote. My name is Cecilia Beam, and I serve as the Adult Education Coordinator for the Center for Dance Education at San Francisco Ballet. You will find in the lobby a brochure on the marble table and at the box office that lists all of the education programs that have been designed to inspire and educate our audience. Please consider participating in our Seeing Ballet workshop, which will make its debut on April 11th. Just a little housekeeping before I introduce our speaker. Today's date is Wednesday, March 25th, 2015, and you can catch this lecture, along with other points of view lectures and meet the artist's interviews on the Interact section of the ballet's website. Following this evening's presentation, please exit to your right, and those with tickets for the performance should have their tickets scanned by the house staff. And finally, we always ask our presenters to allow time for your questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please do so at the microphone located in the center aisle. This way, your question will be heard by all in attendance and captured for the podcast. And now I'll introduce tonight's speaker, Carrie Geyser Casey, who received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in 2009 with a dissertation on women in early 20th century American ballet. She teaches in the LEAP, which stands for Liberal Education for Arts Professionals program at St. Mary's College of California, which enables professional dancers to earn their BA while pursuing their career. Carrie graduated summa cum laude with highest honors from Smith College and was also the recipient of an Andrew W. Mellon Fellowship in Humanistic Studies. Her publications include articles in Theater Journal, Dance Chronicle, the Routledge Encyclopedia of Modernism, and the anthology Dance on Its Own Terms, Prior to her academic career, Carrie danced professionally with the Fort Worth Ballet and was a full scholarship student at the Kirov Academy in Washington, D.C. And now, please welcome Carrie Geyser Casey. Uh, thank you, Cecilia, for the introduction. Um, I have two goals for this evening. Uh, for this evening's talk. The first one is to give you all a bit of historical context about this ballet, and in particular, how Don Quixote fits a profile of later 19th century classical ballets. Um, and the other is to, to have some fun appreciating Don Quixote, um, paying tribute to this delightful ballet, uh, or asking us ourselves what has made this ballet endure for almost 150 years when so many other ballets from this time period have been lost. Now to prime us for what lies ahead, let's watch the famous Foite sequence from the Act Theory Padida. Foites are rapid turns on point performed by the ballerina, usually done in a set of 32. I'm going to try going back and seeing if that works again. Hmm. 
Well, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Cecilia, oh, it's just sometimes I think the computer gets a little bit slow. But you get the idea. Um, usually this is the um, kind of event that brings the house down. It's um, quite spectacular. Um, I should also mention that Fuates probably were not inserted into Don Quixote until at least after 1892. So they probably weren't part of the original production. So the ballet's been through a number of changes over the years. Uh, a bit about the production history of this work. Um, as you can see here, I've divided the production history between pre-Petipa and then the Petipa and post-Petipa productions. Now, who is this Petipa? I'm speaking of Marius Petipa. He was a French dance master who went to Russia and had most of his choreographic career there in Russia, where he is credited with creating the genre of classical ballet. Most contemporary productions of Don Quixote, including the one that you'll be seeing tonight, the Pasakoff thomason version, are descended from this Petipa-Gorsky um, production. So Petipa did a production in 1869 in Moscow, revised it in 1871, and Alexander Gorsky came along and revised it further at the turn of the century. Uh, most of the Don Quixotes produced before this time centered more on the figure of the Don himself, whereas the Petipa production looks at Kitri and Basilio and their romance, and I'll talk in a minute about um, how that fits in with the novel. Uh, also interesting is that while the Russians kept this ballet in, in constant revival in their repertoire, it wasn't seen in the West until 1920, and that was when ballerina Anna Pavlova toured with it, and she toured with a two-act version. The full-length version was not seen until the 1960s, uh, when Nureyev produced one. Nureyev and Baryshnikov both did versions that were very popular and influential. Now, as the title of the ballet indicates, uh, its subject is drawn from Cervantes' great novel, which was published between 1605 and 1615. Uh, the connection between the ballet and the novel is indirect, however, with the aging Don on his crusade for knightly for knightly virtues, really only appearing on the edges of the ballet's action. The story of Kitri and Basilio is loosely based on three chapters of the second part of the book. A few scenes are drawn from the novel, such as in the prologue when Don Quixote is reading his chivalric romances and decides to take up his quest. Certainly the character of Sancho Panza is from the book, that scene where he's tossed in the air by the, the townswomen comes straight from the book. And also, crucially, when Don Quixote intervenes to secure Kitri's father's blessing on her marriage to Basilio. Don Quixote also mistakes Kitri for his beloved Dulcinea, his, his vision of the ideal woman. And this plot device allows for a second act dream scene, very typical of 19th century ballets where the Don hallucinates a full core of women in tutus performing gorgeous classical choreography. Here's Cupid from the dream scene. Mostly, however, the Don is 
a kind of peripheral figure in the main drama of Chetri and Basilio. Chetri is an innkeeper's daughter. She's in love with Basilio. Basilio is a barber. He has no money. Chetri's father wants her to marry the town aristocrat, Gamash, who's a bit of a fop. Um, she is having none of this. Uh, but with the prodding of Don Quixote, the marriage takes place and is celebrated in a grand pas de deux espagnol in Act Three. In essence, the ballet offers us the triumph of Don Quixote's romantic dedication to the cause of true love. However, this triumph of true love is as much the result of the good humor, high spirits, and clever manipulation of those in power by Chetri and Basilio as it is from the Don's idealistic questing. By uh, centering the action of the ballet on the figures of Chetri and Basilio, it might be argued that the ballet presents the triumph of real life over idealism. Now, in terms of choreography and structure, Don Quixote is typical of many later 19th century ballets, uh, the so-called classical ballets. And this term classical gener generally refers to Petipa's work, um, but there were some other choreographers working at this time as well. In general, classical ballet, as opposed to the romantic ballet that came before it, uh, focused more on an academic presentation of dance um, over storyline. So there is more often in a classical ballet dance that does not tell a story. So all of those variations that you see, all of the incidental dances that get added on to the ballet, they don't necessarily move the story forward, um, but they are part of its production. Now, in classical ballets also, the plot is not nearly as important as the setting. And classical ballets frequently used a very exotic setting as a backdrop for all manner of dances reflective of their version of the local color. And these, um, these dances about the local color serve as a kind of contrast to the tutu scenes, frequently the vision scenes or the hallucination scenes, as in Bayadere. Uh, for example, Bayadere from 1877 is set in India. It includes temple dancers, snake charmers, and a golden idol who comes to life. Le Corsaire from 1863 is set off the coast of Turkey. It offers Arabian slave girls, knife-toting pirates, a harem scene, and a spectacular shipwreck. But of all the classical ballets, Don Quixote probably makes the most of its location in terms of colorful dances. In Don Q, we have a toreador, a gang of picadores. We have the toreador's street dancer girlfriend, Mercedes. We have a gypsy camp. Uh, and in the Kira version of the ballet, there is a harem pant-clad street performer who performs a tasteful version of what we would today call exotic dancing. Uh, Don Quixote also, um, in its act three, contains a formal structure that is typical of the 19th century ballet, or I, I'm sorry, the later 19th century ballets, and that is the Grand Pas de Deux. The Grand Pas de Deux has four parts, an adagio for the male and female dancers, solo for the man, solo for the woman, and then a big coda that has lots of usually flashy tricks where they then come together at the end. So this was a kind of formal device that was coming into use uh, predominantly in the later 19th century. 
Now, why was it, why was the Spanish setting in particular um, so um, inspiring to Petipa? In part, Petipa was building on a trend that began in the Romantic era. Choreographers began using Spanish dance in Romantic era ballets uh, starting around the 1830s, inspired by some touring Spanish dancers who performed in the yearly Paris Opera Ball. The Viennese ballerina Fanny Elsler also made Spanish dance popular with her solo, the Cachucha, which she choreographed herself. It's a dance with castanets. And the style of this dance offered an earthier alternative to the sylphs and ghosts that were um, so much a part of the Romantic era repertoire. Think of ballets like uh, La Sylphide or Giselle. Now, Patapa, here, here is his picture, looking a little bit dour. Um, Petipa, before his career in Russia, had spent some time in Spain. He had direct exposure to Spanish culture. He had been engaged as a first dancer at the King's Theater in Madrid, where he learned the fandango and to play the castanets, which he did, in his own words, no worse than the first dancers of Andalusia. While in Spain, Petipa created a number of Spanish-themed ballets, uh, with some really fun titles, Carmen and her Toreador, The Pearl of Seville, The Adventure of the Daughter of Madrid, The Flower of Granada, and The Departure for the Bullfight. So he's already creating lots of Spanish-themed ballets. In his memoirs, he includes a description of a bullfight that he attended uh, where he was joined by a group of dancers on the street. And I'm going to read this whole thing because to me, it really sounds like a description of the first act of Don Quixote. He writes, all the richest, most noble Spaniards gathered there to enjoy for three days the best love show in Spain. There was a bullfight every day for three days. In the evenings, all the visiting and local families fill the streets or gather on the big hotel balconies. In every street, masked, masked students give concerts on their guitars and mandolins. As soon as they start to play the famous fandango, the couples form and all is forgotten in the whirlwind of dancers. I wore a Spanish costume. I felt just like a Spaniard and audaciously invited an attractive Spanish woman to dance. And together with three other couples, we tempestuously, madly did this characteristic Spanish dance. I danced with passion, worthy of a son of Andalusia, for no one could not for one could not but be carried away by the surrounding setting. The students with guitars in place of an orchestra, their shouting, the picture illuminated by another group of students with torches in their hands. Performers, spectators, all rising to a mad excitement. People throwing money to the students, which inspired them with still more enthusiasm, and their enthusiasm infected the rest. Shouts, shrieks, laughter, cloaks thrown under the feet of the dancing girls. Everyday life with its troubles forgotten. The crowd has only one cult, passion. Let's go ahead and watch um, some of these uh, street performances between the Toreador and Mercedes. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, I apologize for that. The, um, the video is just not loading properly. Um, maybe when we're all done, we can go back and see if, if they work again so that we can appreciate them. Uh, but my apologies. Um, now, as I mentioned, uh, it was up to Alexander Gorsky. He was a ballet master from the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. It was up to him to update the production in ways that we are familiar with today. So Petipa's production was, um, looked very old-fashioned by the time the turn of the century came around. He had all the corps de ballet, all the townspeople in the town standing in these very strict formations. Um, nowadays, we see them milling about and responding naturally to the action. And that's because of the changes that Gorsky put in place. Gorsky was greatly influenced by Stanislavski's uh, Moscow Art Theater, uh, which had an interest in presenting drama more realistically. Um, as such, he also introduced the use of authentic costuming into Don Quixote. This is Anna Pavlova as Kitri in the, Gorsky, the Petipa Gorsky production. You can see it's not really a tutu, it looks more like a, uh, something that a flamenco dancer would wear. Uh, Gorsky also got rid of a lot of the pantomime in the ballet, and this pantomime had made uh, Petipa's original version an eye-busting five acts long. So he <laughs> cut a lot of that and, uh, so that there would be more dancing to focus in on. Now, Petipa was completely um, incensed by the um, injustices that had been done to his production, and he complained bitterly about it until his death in 1910. However, as dance historian Lynn Garofola points out, it was because of Gorsky's alterations that the Petipa parts were in fact preserved. Gorsky made Don Quixote a more watchable ballet. Don Quixote's musical score is also typical of many 19th century ballets. Ballets like Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, The Nutcracker, which have scores by Peter Tchaikovsky, are the exception in 19th century dance. Uh, for the most part, these ballets had scores by lesser known composers who made their living providing serviceable, melodic, and made to measure tunes. Uh, such was the role of Ludwig Minkus, who is the main composer of Don Quixote. He was a court-appointed composer at the Imperial Theaters, and he was great at turning out highly danceable music in a really short period of time. Now, I personally like the music of Don Quixote. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, but listen to this blistering review of Minkus's music that followed the debut of, Don of the Anna Pavlova Company's Don Quixote in London in 1924. The reviewer writes, in a long experience of bad music, I have never come across anything so utterly banal, so inane, so thoroughly incompetent in every respect as that of Minkus to Don Quixote. This stuff is an insult to the intelligence of any musical hearer. I had to summon up all my respect for Madame Pavlova to persuade myself to sit it out. Well, Maybe the reviewer should not have been quite so harsh because as it turns out, not all of Don Quixote's music is even by Minkus. Uh, Gorski added music by Anton Simon for the Dryad Queen's variation in Act Two. And then Kitri's famous variation with the fan in Act Three is music by Ricardo Drigo. So why do we have this? Um, the, Russia, the Russians are known for taking a variation from one ballet and just sticking it into another ballet, um, complete with 
the music, the costume, etc. Um, with the result that sometimes you'll get a ballet that has six composers. Um, I'm referring here to the ballet Le Corsair, which really does have six composers. All right, so we've talked about how some of Don Quixote's features have to do with 19th century ballet conventions, but there were a lot of later 19th century ballets. Petipa, in fact, choreographed 57, only a handful of which survive. So why was Don Quixote one of them? Well, I think this is somewhat obvious, but it's one of the things that makes Don Quixote so much fun to watch is the overlay of Spanish flair over classical choreography. Um, aspects of Spanish dance allow the performer to put accents using their wrists, using their elbows, using their feet, almost like they're putting a punctuation mark on some of the classical phrases. It creates um, um, a very dynamic performing style. The characters of Kitri and Basilio, they're headstrong, they're witty, they're spontaneous, they're courageous. Uh, these characters demand a kind of performing style in which bravado is a part, and bravado in ballet, of course, means flashier jumps and turns. They seem to egg each other on to do more and more daring feats, um, somehow never losing their fundamental likability throughout. Some more virtuosity. Another reason Don Quixote is so much fun, uh, people get to dance with a lot of props. Uh, these include knives, capes, castanets, wine glasses, guitars, tambourines, and most notably, the fan. Kitri's third act variation offers extensive use of the fan. And let's try to watch that now and hopefully it will load. <laughs> Okay, now, dancing with a fan is not as easy as you might think. Um, it needs to be integrated seamlessly into the variation as an expression of the character of Kitri. Um, you have to learn how to open and close the fan in time with the music, and also, um, because the fan functions as an extension of the wrist, a very small change in wrist position can really affect the direction that the fan is facing, and therefore, how the fan completes the line of the dancer. Um, it's really easy to drop the fan. Um, it's e easy to break the fan. The fan could go flying into the orchestra pit. Um, some dancers put uh, rosin on their hands to keep the fan from slipping out of their sweaty hands. In Russia, they tie it to their wrist. Uh, <clears throat> and some dancers spend a week or more just learning to time the movements of the fan with the music before they add in the steps of the variation. Um, Gelsey Kirkland, who was a famous interpreter of the role of Kitri in the 70s and 80s, um, she actually had two fan coaches, not just one, she had two people uh, who, who were supposed to be helping her learn how to use the fan. So it's kind of a big deal. Oh, 
how did we get there? Well, that's all right. Um, <clears throat> another reason Don Quixote is so much fun, it is so funny. It's such a funny ballet. And, you know, it, it got me thinking, a lot of the ballets that we have from the 19th century, whether they're romantic ballets or classical ballets, for some reason, the comedies are not as well represented. And it certainly wasn't the case that there were not comedic ballets back in the 19th century, but for some reason, we have more of this, the serious um, or, or even the tragic ballets that have, have, have come down. Um, of course, Don Quixote himself is a kind of tragic comic character with his tin bowl as a knight's helmet, tilting at windmills, etc. And then we also have Gamache pictured here. He is Kitri's rich suitor, the one her father wants her to marry. This role provides a character, dancer, and actor with rich material. And with Gamache, it's interesting to think about how class plays into this ballet. So unlike, for example, Sleeping Beauty, where the protagonists are a prince and a princess, Don Quixote presents regular, everyday people as their heroes and heroines. And this, uh, it's really the upper class people like Gamache who appear to be ridiculously pretentious. This trend of having main characters who are not members of the aristocracy and presenting them positively was not a regular feature of ballets prior to the 19th century. Uh, small wonder Don Quixote found such favor with the Soviets and indeed became one of the signature ballets of the Bolshoi Ballet. All right, reason number four for Don Quixote's success. Um, this is a little bit silly, but I think it's, it's actually really true. Um, Don Quixote has live animals in it, and people just love this. Um, you know, in Giselle, when they bring out those dogs, everybody just goes crazy. It's so much fun to see an animal on stage. So in the San Francisco Ballet production, we have a horse for Don Quixote and a donkey for Sancho Panza. And nothing has produced more lore than the donkey and the horse. First, let me relate Petipa's story of how he found the horse who was to play Rosinante. Rosinante was the name of Don Quixote's horse in the St. Petersburg production of 1871. And already Petipa was shrewd enough to see that this would have a very big effect on the audience. He writes, I recall the production of the ballet Don Quixote on the eve of the first performance of this big ballet of mine, I went to the cavalry grounds on Semenovsky Place and searched for a long time until I found a horse worthy of the role of Rosinante. At the very first performance, the Grand Dukes came backstage to admire the horse with the drooping head, jutting ribs, stiff back leg, answering exactly to Cervantes' description of him. Petapa, the Grand Duke Konstantin Nikolaevich asked me, where did you get a horse which fills the role of Rosinante so perfectly? I succeeded in finding him on the Semenovsky military grounds, your highness. How much did you pay for him? Nine rubles, your highness. A gift, Petipa. In him, you have acquired a great actor to add to the personnel of your company. My purchase of this horse really had an enormous success. On his appearance, the entire audience broke into irrepressible laughter and applauded a long time. Another great story about the horse is um, when Anna Pavlova's company was touring their Don Quixote in London, um, 
they had to get a makeup artist to draw rib shadows on the plump white horse that they got to play Rosinante. And a lady in the audience um, called on the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to come investigate this horse. So an inspector was sent to investigate the horse. Of course, the horse was fine. Um, however, this horse also had a um, very bad habit of having accidents on stage when the blue lights of the night scene came on. It was like Pavlov's dog. The blue, blue lights came on and he had his accident. So they made the horse very nervous, apparently. Uh, this is part of what you get when you have animals on stage, right? All right, finally, I must tell you about Monica. This was the donkey who carried Sancho Panza for 19 years in the Marinsky Theater productions. Monica recently retired from her long theater service with full honors. At her retirement party, she performed a waltz with one of the ballerinas and was presented with farewell gifts of carrot cake, a pinafore, and a kerchief. Her roles have since been taken over by a donkey named Alina. Now, this is all very fun, but I, I ultimately, I, th I think the reason that Don Quixote has endured is because Kitri and Basilio are everyday people that we can relate to. Uh, they don't have important jobs. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of power, but they certainly know how to have a good time. Kitri and Basilio embody in a real world kind of way all those values that Don Quixote, the character, defends. Love, honor, courage, friendship, and pluck. And those are values we can relate to in any century. Thank you. Just want to see if I can get these to play one more time. Um, we have time for questions if anyone wants to come up to the front. Oh, wait, no, we, we got that one. That was fine. It's not gonna work. <laughs> okay. Last try. You, you might notice that um, she changes her spot in the second set of foites. So in the first part, she's looking straight forward. And then she changes her spot all the way around the room. Um, I've never seen a dancer do that on stage before, ever. <laughs> it's really spectacular. Um, so questions, please. The microphone is, is right in the front. Thank you for showing that to us again. I have a question about the flourishes and the Spanish um, gestures. And you said part of what makes this ballet so appealing is that it's full of them. How much of that is spontaneous on the part of the dancers, or do they all 
figure it out in rehearsal? It's, it's uh, choreographed into the ballet. Um, many of the, the arm positions, you know, with the hands on the hips, um, deciding when to flick one's wrist to, in order to accent a musical phrase, that would be left up to the dancer. But um, it's my understanding that a lot, of, a lot of that is built into the choreography um, already. Um, so I think that each dancer would have their own way of expressing those, those nuances. But in general, um, the actual steps and the arm positions are, are, are very set. Uh, yes, thank you. tell if people are leaving or wanting to ask. <laughs> tough, tough to get here. Okay. So I'm, I'm struck by the, in, in the prologue, uh, Sancho Panza comes in because according to the program, he's stolen a ham and Don Quixote talks him into being his squire. Uh, I know that Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are not the main characters here, but that seems so out of character with the book that that Don Quixote would take a thief as his squire. Uh, has anybody ever taken the ballet people to task for that? Um, <laughs> you know, I read the book once. I'd need to go back and, and read that part again. But, you know, what I will say is that, um, you know, Don Quixote is somewhat lost in the fog of his own illusions. Um, and. Uh, you know, not able to see, see things for what they really are in many cases. Um, for example, he's able to conjure up out of Kitri his Dulcinea, his ideal woman, um, where, you know, I love to think about that moment where Kitri basically moons Gamache <laughs> earlier in the ballet. Um, so there, there's a kind of disconnect for Don Quixote between what's actually happening and, and what he imagines to be happening. Um, but it's but that's certainly an interesting question. Why would he take on a thief? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Any more brave souls? Feel free just to stand up and shout shout it out. Otherwise, I'll release you. Yes. Um, so the question is, um, there's that moment, and actually I tried to show it to you on the video and it didn't work, um, where Mercedes dances, um, well, where the Toreadors put knives in the stage and people dance around them. And so the question is, how is the stage set up to handle all these knives? Um, but also is knife dancing a, a, a part of Spanish dance? Um, my answer to that is, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not really sure what they do to the stage. I don't know if there's a special spot that they, that they use. No? You don't know either? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not the, not the prop master. Um, in terms of, to my knowledge, dancing with knives is, is not a, a typical feature of, of 
classical Spanish dance as I know it. Um, but, you know, not all of the dances, the dances that are presented in Don Quixote are, um, you know, often balletticized. So there's already a kind of um, changing of those dances going on. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone thought, oh wow, this will be really flashy and interesting and cool if we have knives on the stage. Um, but I don't really know. Uh, I can answer the question about the knives. The blade of the knife actually goes up into the handle. The way they stick in the stage, they're tiny, two tiny little pieces of metal that actually stick in the stage when they hit, hit the bottom, hit the floor of the stage. Excellent. Well, thank you for clearing that up for us. <laughs> thank you. All right. Any, any last questions? Oh, I see a hand waving over here. Yes, yes, that's... Right, so the, the question is, um, what were those ballets like that ha featured more of Don Quixote? And the answer, unfortunately, is we don't know because those ballets are no longer performed um, and there's no notation score, so all we have are, you know, maybe a few odd, odd librettos or, you know, a few odd pieces um, about them. So, <laughs> sorry. Anything else? His question was about the um, pre-Petipa productions of Don Quixote and, and what, what those were like. Yes. Just a question about art or entertainment. It seems like this version of the ballet is very entertaining, and that's where it captures our captures us. Would you comment on uh, the the comment is that um, if you took Don Quixote, where would it fall on um, the art and entertainment divide? Um, because um, this questioner is noting that, that it seems to be heavily weighted on the entertainment side. Um, and I would agree with that. Uh, however, I do think there are some, some very interesting um, ideas that are, are going on in the ballet, um, differences between reality and illusion, uh, for example, um, thinking about the ideal and the real, um, I don't know if that elevates, you know, if that makes it art, um, but I certainly think that the, um, the level of artistry and technique being shown is, is another way of um, thinking about this ballet as art rather than as just entertainment. If it were just entertainment, then kind of anybody could perform it, but not everybody can perform this, so it falls into that category in that way. Yes. Yes. 
Oh, if, I, if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, when, when were the women dancing on point in Don Quixote versus wearing those flat shoes? You know, I, I think you might be thinking of that picture of Anna Pavlova with her, she wasn't wearing point shoes in that picture. Um, you know, I don't really know because we don't have, you know, I don't, we don't have a, a record of, of that ballet. We don't have a video of that ballet. We don't have a record of that ballet. So it'd be hard to know when exactly, when what dances did she dance on point and when did she wear these character shoes. Um, I imagine that during the, the wedding pas de deux, she would have danced on point. Maybe in the first act, she would have been in character shoes. Um, but certainly in the vision scene, she would have been on point. So anything that was more um, character-based and more Spanish-y uh, might have been on, on flat, uh, not flat, but on those slightly heeled shoes. Is that, was that your question? Okay, thank you. Yes. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last part of your... Yes, um, in, the, in the second act, before his, his dream scene, there's a windmill, and he, he goes off to attack it and conks his head, and that's how he has his, his vision of, of Dulcinea. So they, they do include that part in the ballet. Yes. I'm sure he must have, um, but I'm, I'm not. You know, I, so Balanchine did a one-act Don Quixote in 1965 that did center on Don Quixote himself. But I'm pretty sure it, it, wasn't, it wasn't performed, it didn't have a long performance life, and I'm pretty sure that Balanchine performed the role of Don Quixote mostly. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. The, uh, the San Francisco ballet history of, of Don Quixote is they had the act three wedding pas de deux in their repertoire starting from uh, 1948, uh, but then did the full length in 2003. So it's coming, you know, it's a relatively recent production for them. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we have time for one last question. All right, well, th thank you all very much for coming and I hope you enjoy the performance tonight.